Switching to Geico is a good idea, especially when you consider everything. First off, Geico makes it easy to switch. They have licensed agents available 24-7 online or over the phone. But if it's so easy, you might start thinking everything is easy, even big wave surfing. And it's not. It's actually quite difficult. Well, if you switch to Geico, you could save hundreds on car insurance. And you could keep saving by bundling your motorcycle, boat, and RV, plus your home or renter's insurance. But saving money might lead you to make some questionable purchases, like a 20-foot feather boa. And do you know how hard it is to clean a 20-foot feather boa? Well, they do have an industry-leading mobile app you can use to pay your bill, file and manage a claim, or add a new driver. But when life gets a little easier, it makes you too confident. And you start calling everyone ace. And you're better than that. Well, GEICO has a 97% customer satisfaction rating and has been saving people money for 85 years. It's hard to beat that. But you're right. Switch to GEICO. It's obviously a good idea. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Greg Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome back to Say It Ain't Contagious, where we talk about the intersection of baseball, social justice, and politics. My name is Chova Wang, and I otherwise am a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School. A lot happened this week. I'm sure you know all about the verdict in the George Floyd case that has, I think, affected everybody. And some other other lighter things that happened during the week uh, in the world of sports, things like the, the Super League in Europe, which lasted all of 48 hours. So I'm, I'm going to just kick it off asking if any of you guys have um, things you want to share either about the verdict or the, you know, the, the situation and also some of the reaction around the sports world and, and in general to it, um, if you would like to, to talk about that. Is relief the, the dominant emotion that we feel here? Because we, we have such a history in this country of juries either deferring to police or or acquitting people who do this sort of thing on, on the basis of of kind of a blanket prejudice in, in favor uh, of of the white race or white police in general, that we don't have to to confront another disappointment. It, it, it's not justice because justice, as, as someone said, I think it was Keith Ellison who said justice implies restoration and there's there's no restoration. This is not justice. This is accountability. And in the long run, maybe that's not good enough, but for this moment, it feels kind of kind of like a, a relief. I mean, what were your expectations? I, I I don't know that I can get my brain around the fact that we saw someone get murdered on high definition video, and up until the moment I heard what the judge said in the jury, I was very pessimistic that there would be any consequences for it for Derek Chauvin. I don't know what that says about us now. And I'm look, and I'm somebody who I practiced law for 11 years. I, I was in courtrooms and generally have an idea of how things go and, and how things often don't go the way you would hope they go. And even with that, I was still sitting there shocked that they came to the right conclusion here. And I, it's just, I'm still dealing with that a few days later about where is our country, if, if that's how we are all feeling about this. But that just tells you about the place of police and and the way our criminal justice system works and, and the inherent racism in our system. It also, this is Lincoln Mitchell, it also kind of strikes me that certainly from what both of you have said and kind of the vibe I get is that this doesn't change anything, right? This is a, it's in some sense, it's not even not justice. I mean, I don't, you know, George Floyd is dead and nothing you do to Derek Chauvin is going to change that. But moreover, a lot of people are dead because of the actions of white racist police and nothing we do to Derek Chauvin is going to change that either. And I don't take great solace in someone going away for a long time. I mean, I'm, I'm in this case, it's the right thing, but it doesn't bring happiness to me, although I, I would, it beats the alternative. But what, what, what really strikes me is what concerns me here is that this will be used by the right and others to create a story that that uh, underscores or strengthens the few bad apples narrative, which is racist apologies, apology, apologia, and to say, look, this criminal justice system does work. So don't take to the streets. Don't make more demands. So I, I'm I'm concerned about about that. For me, in the aftermath of the verdict coming down, I immediately started thinking about the police report that originally came out after Floyd was murdered, 
and thinking about how there's so many folks who deny the reality of systemic racism or institutional racism, that original police report and that practice of having that report broadcast out as the line, the, the, the news, and everyone, that's our first, often the first bit of information we have about this. It, it, it said that he died of some medical ailment while he was being apprehended. And if it wasn't for the videotape of a teenager, and then people actually coming to think about, and I wonder how much of us being in quarantine during when this was happening actually allowed us to think on it and not just to go with the, the police report and, sit and and really come to bear with what that young woman, that young girl saw and right in front of her and then everyone else saw right in front of them. Yeah, like Craig said, it was, we saw someone murdered before our very eyes. It wasn't the first time. It wasn't the last time. But I think because so many of us were in quarantine, we actually stopped and really thought about it. And so this is one verdict. It is not judicial reform and it's not police reform because police reports are still continuing to be produced this way, that it presents to the public a certain version of what happened that casts doubts on the person who has been killed. My hope here, and I agree completely with Mitchell. It's Dr. Mitchell. Lincoln Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell. Mitchell. <laughs> whatever. Hey, Mitchell. Hey, Goldman. Hey, Wang. Hey, whatever. Um, my, my hope here, I, I, I agree with Lincoln in the idea that this doesn't fix anything and this is still going to have, this is still going to happen and it's happened forever and it's probably still going to happen for a very long time. But around the edges, my hope is that it you know, becomes less common for, for two reasons. I, I, I hope that, as Adrian said, that we stop taking the reports at face value. The huge problem we have right now in the media, especially local media, where most people get their you know local crime news, unfortunately, is just being complete transcribers for the police, just completely taking their word for it, using their language. It's sort of like when you see embedded military reporters adopting the jargon of the army, right? They do that because they want to feel a part of this or they just they bow to authority or whatever reason. But it's amazing how much that language obscures and obfuscates. He just said redundantly, obfuscating his point. <laughs> My hope is that the media starts to get wiser about that and realize you were bald-faced lied to a million times and you were caught in this situation. That We realize what the Minneapolis police did and we won't do it again. We'll be more critical. More critical thinking of authority will help uh, stop abuses of authority. More directly, and I would hope this is the case too, it's really, really rare that a police officer gets thrown in jail for this kind of thing. And you could say anything you want in police training. You could, you could, you know, do all the, 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 the courses and, and anything else to, to try to get police to behave differently. But if even a few more police officers are going out on patrol next week thinking, you know what, I might be getting thrown in jail if I step over the line here. I just saw it happen. You would hope that's not what is required to be a deterrent for illegal and uh, excessive force, but it might be, right? It really might be. There, there might be a cop out there who pulls a punch or doesn't fire a shot because he thinks what could happen to him because right now there are actually consequences out there. That's my hope. That's the best that I can think that can come from this. And yet in the days that follow, how many incidents have we already seen of police shootings of, uh, of civilians in trying to administer see like they don't police aren't supposed to administer justice right <laughs> they're not you know the court the judge and the jury and executioner and and they shouldn't be and uh, you know the level of accountability is what we saw increased a little bit but practices the thing that disturbs me time and again has been this was a legal shooting or a legal action based on the training and our policies. It's like, there's a problem right there about that. According to the policies that they have enacted, it's okay to do this. The police to, to put somebody in a chokehold and to kill the person. You know, this is Michael Garner. This is Amadou Diallo. I mean, we go back years and 
And we think about how we have moved as a society from extrajudicial killings like we saw with Emmett Till to now the fear that so many people continue to have when they are a person of color, when they're an African-American, a black person, a black woman, when the police approach their car, their vehicle. It is an experience that is so difficult to kind of share with someone the the angst. Um, you know, I, I the first time I ever got pulled over for a moving violation was in New York City. I evidently had run through a red light coming off the Bronx River Parkway and switching over to another highway, and they pulled weapons on me. And I, college kid, I didn't even know what I had done. But they saw a brown, a Latino guy driving through the Bronx, and it was suspicion. And I'm like, holy crap. I look over my right shoulder, look over my left shoulder. They all have weapons, and there's three cars behind me. And it was, you know, didn't turn out bad. But I was fearful. And, and you know, that is the reality that so many Americans have because of how policing has evolved in this society. And it's so, you know, I continue to grieve for George Floyd and his family. And I continue to be circumspect in thinking about the path forward because we need a lot more buy-in than one jury. I feel awful that that happened to you. And it brings up one of the reactions that I've seen to some of these recent cases of of shootings of people who and and not just in the in the George Floyd case but in in more jejun circumstances where someone gets pulled over a person of color gets pulled over and they end up being shot and one of the the sort of reactionary takes that you see on social media is well cooperate and you won't get hurt but what i i think both the the people who are who are commenting on it politically and even cops who object to being scrutinized this way is that both from the point of view of the person of color being pulled over, there is a different set of considerations and incentives that go to that decision-making tree in terms of what the outcome might be for them. It's not the same for me as a, a white male getting pulled over. Yeah, I may or may not get a ticket, but the escalation to violence is not something that I've seen in my community such that I have to worry about it in the same way. I'm still real careful. I put my keys and my hands on the keyboard and I don't make any on the, on the wheel. I mean, and I don't make any sudden moves just in case somebody is really twitchy, but it's, it's different. You have to think about that from the perspective of, of someone who has seen years and and years in this. And what I, I don't understand about the, the, the blue wall of silence and all that is that, and Craig alluded to this earlier in terms of cops maybe pulling their their punches in in a, in a case where they might summarily execute someone. Is there are legitimate cases, however few we really don't know. This is the problem, where a police officer does have to use force for safety of the community. But when the motives become doubtful because of cases like this, it impugns every single one of them, right or wrong, and you can't be sure about the the uh, purity of their motives or of their decision-making process. So it actually works badly for them too. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, I have a million feelings and um, thoughts about this that I haven't even processed. But I, you know, going back into our wheelhouse a little bit, because there's a lot of discussion, of course, happening around this really serious situation, Um it's looking at some of the reaction. Of course, maybe it's the bias of my Twitter Twitter feed, but it saw a lot of reaction from NBA players. As always, I was it was interesting to see the the president of the NBA Players Association and Adam Silver, the commissioner, issued a joint statement. You don't see that too often, so that was interesting. I don't know what the hell baseball did. Not much. They they had a very word salady kind of uh, statement that they released, saying that they're committed to social justice sounded very much like their statements about how they're committed to health during the pandemic and committed to their partnership with 
you know, camping world during the NLCS. It was it was just pretty generic. It was an improvement on their statement uh, in the wake of uh, the murder of George Floyd, which took nine days last year for Major League oh, Baseball right. to even acknowledge it. They have they have not been out front. Uh, the Minnesota Twins, to their credit, they they had a statement and a pretty strong one um, before the verdict even came out uh, earlier right. that day. Uh, some of the clubs, uh, some groups like the Players League, uh, some individual players. Um, Aaron Aaron Hicks to took a few days off and then came back and was benched. Um, not for taking the days off, but just for not hitting <laughs> yeah. for three years. But that wasn't that wasn't the George Floyd thing. That was the, right. That was Dante um, Wright. Dante, yeah. yeah. Um, there's an acknowledgement. Yeah. There's an acknowledgement yeah. within Major League Baseball within Major League Baseball that that is not present uh, at the league level. Let's just put it that way. We have to recognize the extent to which a large number, perhaps a majority of Americans, and almost certainly a majority of white people in America believe that the role of the police is to act like an occupying army in low-income community of color, communities of color, and that contrary to what Adrian or I might think or any of us might think, they believe that the police should are and should be empowered to act as judge, jury, and executioner. They might not phrase it quite like that, but in fact, they might. And this, we just have to remember that. And baseball is not a moral enterprise. It is a money enterprise. And this is just a reminder of how difficult the policy side of this is because baseball took what for baseball counts as a radical step of pulling the all-star game out of Georgia. And now, you know, they've, they they may even regret that by now because of the problems they may have created for themselves with, with, with their Republican friends. And, you know, the right-wing boycotts are, are to be laughed at, right? I mean, Donald Trump wants to boycott Coca-Cola and still serves it at all his uh, sleazy uh, establishments. I don't know what I would expect from baseball here, but I wouldn't expect much more. A huge part of their fan base thinks hmm, Derek Chauvin was a good cop who made one mistake, right? And, we, and, and, and that, you know, we've heard that about. At best. I'm sorry? <laughs> At right. Best. So, so that's, and that speaks to both how difficult this is, but also where baseball is, and that is a, a reflection of, of their fan base. I'm not excusing it because, you know, the right thing to do is to still say the right thing and take the hit, but that's not what this institution is or does. I mean, I know we we talk about this all the time about the fan base of baseball being very white and quite conservative, and then, you know, you've got us. And I just, I don't, I don't quite understand, maybe this is getting off topic, but how did it evolve to a place where we assume that the, all the people we see at the stadium when we go to games are like these right-wing people who don't think Derek Chauvin did anything wrong. I mean, I think some of it's demographic. You know, baseball, the, just when you look at the act, when they poll people, when they talk about who the fan base is, baseball's fan base is whiter, older, male, uh, suburban, and exurban. That's a, a broad assumption. And I think, you know, people like me and people like Steve are online all day, you know, talking to baseball fans and readers and things like that. And we might get a skewed impression one way or the other. Some days it seems a lot more liberal and enlightened. And some days it feels like we're talking with the John Birch society or, or the San Diego Padres pitching staff of the 1980s. Absolutely. <laughs> those, those listening don't realize I'm wearing a, a Padres cap right now. So Lincoln is making a big <laughs> point of that, uh, <laughs> but Eric Shaw aside and, and Mark um, Thurman and, and Dave Dravecki, right? Dave Dravecki. That, that's and, true. That's true. That, that was, man, that was quite a group, good um, pictures, but very, very good pictures. Uh, but you know, it's, I think baseball fandom just does skew that way. And then, you know, the player, we, we could also sort of extrapolate from who plays baseball. Youth baseball is played by increasingly white, southern, exurban, and western kids, right? I mean, higher wealth levels as well. Uh, the players themselves are whiter uh, than there are in in basketball and, and football. It's it's There's just a lot of data points to suggest that baseball is a more conservative sort of crew. And then we see postings like the Washington Nationals, one of their fans or someone posted about the best shortstop in baseball who <laughs> wear gold tips, who wear gold chains. And then it's like, you know, referencing, you know, to, but, but not, I guess they're subtweeting Tati, subtweeting Lindor, subtweeting, you know, all these other folks. And then to talk about, oh, Trey Turner's the best shortstop in baseball. 
Um, the other thing, going back to Tova's question for, about for, yeah, did, for the Yankee fans in the crowd, Glaber Torres is no longer in that mix, so there was no insult to him there. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone except for Garrett Cole on the Yankees is mentioned among the best players. Is there any in mix besides Garrett Cole? <laughs> hey, it's temporary. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, the the other thing I'm I'm really interested in is the correlation, and and too bad we don't have our esteemed friend Frank Garitti here today. But as stadiums got smaller, did the class demographic of those who get to the park just start skewing up, up and up toward a middle to upper middle class status? You know, I, I recall youth going to Yankee Stadium, sitting out in the bleachers or in the right field corner, affordable tickets. And then now, like when they built the new, new Yankee Stadium, the, the outfield bleacher seating there's more space given to the Hard Rock Cafe than there is to really bleach your seat. Uh, and, and, and the numbers back that up in terms of in real dollars, the relative cost of going to a ballgame now versus the 80s or 70s or anything like that. So that is that – is, uh, there's another point to this too that, that I want to raise, which I'm going to have a hard time articulating, articulating, already having a hard time, but I'm going to give it a try, which is this. Jackie Robinson, who um, we've talked about before on this podcast, is – such a hugely important figure in baseball history and in American history. But baseball fans from a long time ago, probably the 60s, 70s, have been told a story about civil rights, which goes something like this. Segregation, exclusion of African-American players, I'm only using nouns, Negro Leagues, Jackie Robinson, everything's okay. And, And they've heard that over and over and over again. And they look around and they say, hi, I'm a baseball fan. I love Jackie Robinson or, you know, a generation later, Willie Mays or Henry Aaron or someone like that. And that in their mind, doesn't inoculate them, but creates a narrative where they're on the good side, where baseball's on the good side. And the one thing that racist America hates as mu- almost as much as anything is any discussion of race that requires nuance that says, yes, it's great that Jackie Robinson had a chance to play. Jackie Robinson was a great player. Willie Mays and Henry Aaron were even better players. Baseball wouldn't be the same without these guys. And, and it's great that, you know, but there are still real problems. And that that narrative, which is unavoidable if you want to, you know, speak about truth, I think really irritates older white fans because in other segments of life, other areas of life, it irritates older white people. So this can't be a racist country. We've elected Barack Obama president. Those two sentences, if you take them on their own, have nothing to do with each other. But when you explain that to people who are who want to believe otherwise, it really gets an anger out. And I think that is also part of the the narrative about conservatism around racial and other issues in the baseball fan base. I, I recently with I mean, and when I say recently, I'll say within the last couple of years had a, an argument with someone that's not unlike an argument that I've had with lots of people. And uh, it, it came up of the NBA was doing something progressive or made a statement about something progressive. And I said something to the effect of, well, I wish Major League Baseball would do this. And the response back was, hey, Major League Baseball integrated in 1947. And, and like that, it was it was like 2017 when this conversation was going on. But the 1947 is the forever get out of racism right. free card. And Major League Baseball has done a great deal to encourage that kind of thinking. Um, it's spent millions it and millions of dollars off. to encourage that kind of millions and oh, tens of millions. Absolutely. Yeah. And just I, I, I was actually at the anniversary. Yeah. I, I mean, I was a little proud, I guess is the word. Maybe not. Um, that's a strong word, but I, I was a little surprised, I guess, pleasantly surprised to see major league baseball sort of hit the Jackie Robinson hammer a little lighter this April 15th than they have in previous years. There, there was a lot less back padding of, of themselves than you normally see, because I think they're listening a little bit to the criticism out there. But it's still, uh, we have decades and decades of of Jackie Robinson. You know, this is, my best friend was black 80 years ago, is, is doing a lot of work for, uh, for Major League Baseball. Too. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. 
Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. Ctmobile.com. Life gets more magical when you dream. So dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. And the other thing about the celebrating of Jackie Robinson, that MLB 30-second spot that they played during each game that was televised about Robinson, in the same year that the Major League Baseball said the Negro Leagues were also Major League, there's no mention whatsoever of the Negro Leagues, that he came out of Kansas City Monarchs. It, it, it was like totally flew by. They talk about all these other aspects of, of who Jackie was and all the different sports he played at UCLA. Let's just skip over the Negro Leagues and just go right into 1947. So, again, it, it's fascinating to me how the story is very much self-congratulatory. And in 2021, that we're not reckoning with that reality of what was done to black baseball as an infrastructure from the local level to the high school to the colleges by how Major League Baseball pursued its version of integration. You know, there should have been a nod to the Negro Leagues as part of that story because it is a critical part of the story. Jackie Robinson would not have been a Major League player had he not played in the Negro Leagues. You talk about the problem with nuance. Uh, Here's one that bakes everybody's noodle, and it's it's a relatively new talking point, at least among white fans who don't pay a lot of attention to this sort of thing. And uh, highlighting it a lot recently was Andrea Williams just came out with an excellent book about Effa Manley and the Negro Leagues. Um, And and she's made this point over and over again. Uh, Major League Baseball destroyed the Negro Leagues. And, and there was actually damage there. Now, this is already starting to fry the brains of, of your average white guy because, well, wait a minute, the Negro Leagues, we shouldn't have had to have them because it was bad to have something separate and nominally equal. Well, true, true. But the problem is, you know, Major League Baseball, matter of fact, came in, plucked the best stars. It, in many uh, cases, didn't base- pay for their contracts. Branch Rickey didn't Most pay. I mean, cases- Bill Vec did, but Branch Rickey, uh, Rickey didn't. Yeah, they didn't didn't pay for the contracts the way they would have if they had found some guy in the Pacific Coast League. So, you know, undercut the financial viability of the Negro Leagues. And then in its integration, it was extraordinarily selective. It took whoever it thought would help them as far as star players go. But there were legions of lesser uh, Negro Leagues players who would have been by far better than a lot of guys in the minors or guys on benches in the major leagues. Uh, Coaches, scouts, trainers, front office people. That they were just completely obliterated, wiped off the baseball map. And, and to say that this is ancient history is wrong, too, because we know how mentorship works in baseball. We know how the generations go. A guy is a coach. Uh, the, the manager of the Cincinnati Reds is the manager because his dad was a big leaguer and because his grandfather was a big leaguer. And there are tons and tons of less famous people in baseball who have that same sort of the family. The Yankees also, thing. right? Yeah, exactly. And... I don't care if his grandfather was the Pope. I'm not sure how much longer he should be the manager of the New York Yankees. Hey, now we're talking something serious. Yeah, no, I mean, this does tie back to the present day, uh, what did you say, word salad of MLB's statement on on George Floyd and so on and not, uh, you know, not exactly being bold. Well, yeah, and but the thing is, you know, we have a very white sport now and it's even whiter now than it was in the 70s and the 80s. And, and a huge reason why it's so white is because there wasn't those – there wasn't that level of mentorship. How many general right. managers would we have if someone was brought on as a, as a scout in 1952 and then he was able to grow in the game and then he brought on his own, uh, you know, uh, mentees later. We don't have that. We never had that because the Negro leagues were destroyed. And that is a point that just gets completely lost in the, in the discussion. I just wanted to, to add to what we were saying about destroying the value of the, the Negro leagues and how, for a, a lot of a lot of of re, again, I'll use the word reactionaries. That history stopped in 1947, and it's that you can you can relate this to the need for things like affirmative action, which is another cause celeb on on their side of the thing. Because what you're trying to do is to correct a historic imbalance of resources and opportunity. So when we look at things like housing, right, and that people of color were prevented from getting equal access to the housing market, 
So much of white American wealth is created in property that's handed down, which in turn fuels other opportunities that come out of having that better financial basis, including education. And they just look at it as if it should be sort of purely meritocratic when there's no good way of defining that anyway. But the Negro Leagues is another example of destroying value in that community and then saying, but hey, you're all equal now. So everyone's starting from the same place. Well, they're not. Key point, Stephen. Key point. Thank and you. Thinking about what I was going to say, has there ever been a second generation African-American manager? Like his dad was a manager? And no. Like, think about that. Frank Robinson's kids never became major league managers. They didn't even become major league players. Moishe Salou is a he manager. He hasn't managed in the major leagues yet. No, that's what I'm saying. Right? Not yet. Assessing. Right. Yeah. But, and and have, did he get any interviews this offseason? I don't Nothing think I know. And, and the other um, point was about mentorship and how that it, baseball infrastructure or black baseball infrastructure was in place. So a friend of mine, Andy Martinez, uh, works, writes uh, social media notes and stuff for the Marquee Network, had an article where he had talked with Jason uh, Hayward. And Hayward mentioned about the efforts that older African-American players, veterans like him, are making sure to extend the hand of mentorship out to younger African-American players. And what was really interesting was, and this is what caught Andy's mind in Jason's statement, like the Latino players do for their guys. He had noticed that guys going back, you know, to Pedro Martinez and and, uh, David Ortiz, uh, they always look out for the younger players and mentor them in a way that he thinks like provides African-Americans a model to like really work on that and extend themselves to the younger guys because MLB is not going to do it. And that did exist with African-American players historically. I mean, certainly Henry Aaron yeah, did that. Willie Mays. I'm sorry. Negro leaguers. But former did, Negro right? leaguers. Right. But, yeah, but, but yeah, Dusty Baker, who was a generation back, did it also. And he was never, he was too young. His father was a Negro. Who was his mentor though? What? Think about the guys of course, that Dusty of course. came in. And also Dusty's father had played the Negro leagues. So there was that connection. But I was also struck by something you said, Adrian, about not just at the major league level, but baseball has removed itself from the kind of geography of uh, MLB, from the geography or the map of African-American baseball far beyond just the Negro Leagues. And that's also a, a, a problem. Of course, these things are related, right? Because if, to go back to Craig's, what Craig was saying a few minutes ago, if when Jackie Robinson had come in, instead of limiting to three non-white players a team, which was the policy for quite a while, you had said, you know what, if the last three guys on the pitching staff, the, uh, the three African-American guys are better than the three white guys, we're bringing them in, which is how you, what you were doing if you were really trying to win and not worrying about hold, upholding racist institutions. You'd have that many more people who'd be former ball players going back to their community and being able to be a little higher status because – I know from, and I'm sure, you know, many people who played baseball, even if you didn't play at a very high level, that if your coach, I'm talking about when you were in school, had played in the big leagues, you stood up a little straighter when they started telling you how to play baseball. It, you got a little more excited, but there's people who didn't have the chance to do that because of the racism, and that trickles down as well. That's just one example. You remind me of a story I've shared in different places that one of our assistant football coaches at the high school I went to, Ely High School in Pompano Beach, Florida, his name was Felix Chin Evans. And it wasn't until, and I played varsity baseball in high school and in college. It, he had nothing to do with the baseball team at our high school. He was an assistant football coach. It wasn't until I was a graduate student doing research on the Negro Leagues that I learned that the guy I knew as Coach Evans was a multi-time participant in the East-West Classic in the Negro Leagues. It's just like, so what I, I intuit from that is, so many African-American men who had played in the Negro Leagues, who had played baseball, shifted their energies to helping young African-American boys become men and play football and play basketball because there was no career in baseball for them. And it was beginning to have an impact. How many football scholarships? Signing day at the high school I went to was a huge day because you would have some years 15 to 20 guys, like both Starting lineups. We had like one year, the year I graduated, the bat, our Nickelback got a football scholarship because our football program was so strong. And 
none of us guys who played baseball got baseball scholarships, you know, at the same high school. So, you know, that is the reality of the how that infrastructure of black baseball was dismantled by willful neglect by Major League Baseball. I don't want to cut this off, but I do want to talk a little bit about another sport that might have more racist fans than baseball. <laughs> um. <laughs> it has more nationalism. I'm fans. sorry. That's my mistake. Probably a larger anti-Semitic footprint as well. Oh, no, they're racist and nationalists. Let's not pick and choose. <laughs> Let the audience in on what we're talking about. So we're talking about soccer or football. We're talking about lacrosse? We're talking about soccer. rugby. <laughs> oh, no. My notes are off. European football, and you may have heard about this uh, ill-fated creation of a super league. I'm going to lean on Craig to just really briefly explain what went down and tell you that the thing that I found most fascinating was the reaction of fans, which I think was very different from what you'd see here, and also politicians. So, but Craig, go ahead and give us the, uh, the overview. So imagine, if you will that the New York Yankees, the Mets, the Red Sox, the Cubs, the Dodgers, maybe the Cardinals got together and said, we're going to do our own thing. Um, we'll play our, we'll play your season. And then when your World Series is over, it's real cute. We're going to have this multi-billion dollar tournament with just us, not you, just us. And we're going to keep all the money and whatever happens, happens. We would probably freak out and and that is a situation where we don't care nearly as much about baseball in this country as people in England and Italy and other places like that care about soccer. So uh, that's basically what happened. The, the big dogs of European soccer, we're talking about Manchester City, Liverpool, Tottenham Hotspur, Manchester United, uh, Milan, Barcelona, Real Madrid, all the big, big teams that normally play in what is called the Champions League. It's not their regular season league, for those of you who don't follow European football. Um, this is like sort of the all-stars of the various domestic leagues in Europe get together every year. They play. And the beautiful thing about the Champions League, the reason why it's so hyped, is it's it's kind of like World Cup for uh, for club teams, whereas you can earn your way in. You, you don't have to be as rich as Manchester United or Liverpool. If you play well, if you're in your top three or four in your league, you get to play in this awesome, lucrative tournament called the Champions League. And it, it's just this huge thing has been around for a long time. Well, so these big teams all tried to do their what I just described as that Yankees Red Sox Mets thing called the Super League, where they were going to make their own closed off tournament uh, for billions and billions of dollars. And this led to a huge outrage, uh, just an absolute outrage because uh, soccer fans, and I'm not talking just fans of other teams. This was fans of their own teams. Like Liverpool fans were mad at Liverpool and John Henry, the owner of the Red Sox, who also owns Liverpool. Uh, Manchester United fans were mad at Manchester. This was seen as a huge transgression, not just because it was exclusionary, but because it went against the very foundation of European soccer and sports basically in every country except the United States, which is uh, success on the field is is rewarded. Uh, lack of success on the field is punished, and it doesn't matter what your bottom line is. Now, that's a that's a little bit idealistic because it does matter still that you know Man U has more money than anybody else and they can get better players. But in theory, this idea of relegation, promotion, um, of earning your way into the big party that's a huge thing. And the fact that they tried to close it off to other teams and keep the money for themselves was a huge, huge thing. And it blew up in 48 hours. <laughs> I mean, it really wasn't. So it was strange because it's like, well, that was fast for a bunch of billionaires to lose a battle um, that billionaires tend to win. Uh, I, I was just trying to imagine if that had gone down here in the United States. I mean, I don't know about the other sports, but with baseball, I mean, the billionaires always win, don't they? And it was just the outrage that I don't even know how they expected anything different to happen. But apparently they did. But yeah, exactly what you're talking about. The fan, I mean, those guys, the fans in, in England, especially, they know how to make them, their voices heard. You know what I'm saying? So I, I learned a lot this week, by the way, because I wrote about this a little bit. I don't write about soccer very often, but I, I learned a lot because I have a lot of readers that are from England and places like that. And, you know, I think the response for most Americans watching the Super League stuff was, wow, they're a lot more passionate over there and their outrage is what carried the day. And and that's true, but it goes deeper than that. And it goes to the fundamental nature of, of fandom in, in Europe versus fandom here, not just about passion, but about where they, they sit at the table. 
Yeah. And this is, th- these are things I don't know, or you don't know if you don't pay attention to stuff like this. I'm sure some of you listeners are, are premier league fans and you know, all this stuff, but it's new to most people here. Um, you know, when, when the schedule comes out for the English premier league and there's a, a match between, I don't know, Blackpool and somebody down South or something. Uh, and they set the match at 1230 in the afternoon, people freak out because that's not enough time to get from the North of the country to the South of the country. And the schedule is is moved around that because fans over the years and decades have made it clear that they need to be able to get to the game. And the leagues pay attention to that. They have they have considered the fans to be stakeholders in ways that their fans are not stakeholders in America. The same goes for ticket prices. There are there are rules the English Premier League has set about how much you could charge for away ticket prices for club supporters. And then there are formalized fan clubs that are far more formalized than just, you know, uh, the, the bleacher creatures in the Yankees, you know, in, in the Bronx. We, we have, uh, you know, there are clubs that actually have some level of say and are, are brought in uh, to get their temperature checked when it comes to decisions that are made in European soccer. The fundamental difference between the Super League thing and what normally happens there is none of those stakeholders were consulted. And I'm not just talking about the fans, the TV networks, the governments, the shareholders, just everybody involved, the media, they were not consulted on the Super League team thing the way they would be on other decisions. And the way it was described was this was the way that American sports work. They don't care what anybody else does. And the blame for this whole thing is being placed largely on the increasing American ownership of English soccer and European soccer. The former Dodgers owner, Frank McCourt, uh, McCourt, owns a a French soccer league. He wasn't involved in the Super League, but he's the type. John Henry, of course. The former Rangers owner, Tom Hicks, used to own Liverpool. There's a huge move of American billionaire types and Russian billionaire types and Middle Eastern billionaire types into the world of European soccer that are trying to bring an American approach to sports. And I think that is the huge takeaway, at least for us of that's the system we have and have accepted our entire lives. And they rebelled against it. I mean, which is the amazing thing. I mean, I think the other difference is, is that, I mean, while this might have been the case in the United States at one time, there are really deeply rooted traditions that are at the neighborhood level with these teams and the level of commitment that goes back generations. Well, we might have had that in baseball at one time where you had the players living in the neighborhood that you lived in and all that kind of stuff. There's not that level of connection to the teams in any sport. I find it, I find it fascinating. I mean, it is fascinating that that doesn't exist. The process of destroying of how that got destroyed is, is fascinating. And, and as you know, there are, I'm sure there are listeners or if you're over 70 and living in Brooklyn, you will, talk about franchise movement, but I think there's more, there's more to the story than that, but it is very, very real. And, and, you know, baseball in particular for, for which the transition from a game that was first experienced by radio and print and in person to a game that is experienced online and in television, it's a rocky transition for baseball. It doesn't happen naturally, but those, those, those sinews were, 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 were torn at some point in baseball history and, and those connect connection isn't isn't there anymore there's a a sort of passage of time thing here that makes the reaction to this different than it would have been in baseball say a hundred years ago and if you think about a team like the dodgers who have have come up a couple of times in this discussion they did not start in the national league they started in the american association and not the defunct minor league circuit, but an upstart league that competed with the National League for a few years and then kind of auctioned themselves off to the the best buyer or the or the the league that was making them the best deal. The owner of the New York Giants at around that same time had the Giants team and I think a franchise in the American Association too, which was playing sort of in an adjacent but inferior ballpark. And there was there was a lot of shuffling between the two. Similarly, the the version of relegation at that time was they would just cancel your team. The the famous one is the the Cleveland Spiders, but actually the Baltimore Orioles went out at that time too. The Spiders just got ended. The Orioles, which were a really successful team, one of the most successful teams at the time, actually got folded into the Dodgers because they allowed Dodgers ownership to buy into the Orioles and then take all their best players. That's also why the Pirates were super good at the top of the 20th century because they managed to merge the dying Louisville franchise into the Pirates team, and as part of that transaction, transaction, excuse me, they got Hans Wagner out of it. So there's this. There used to be. We used to take it for granted that these things would realign and shuffle. There, there's actually a, a famous moment 
about 1920 in which a group of American League owners who were popularly referred to as the Insurrectos were so ticked off at Ban Johnson, who had founded the league in terms of decisions that he was making that seemed to be venal in that he was a part owner of the Cleveland franchise and they would seem to get certain breaks and first shots at certain uh, quality players. And, and he just seemed arbitrary. And so they came very close to succeeding from the American League and forming a new circuit that essentially would have, you know, left the American League with the Browns. So that that fell apart at the last minute, in part because of the Black Sox scandal, where Johnson got kind of diminished by being put under uh, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, and they stayed in. But these things, again, they used to be common. So yes, it's it's a money grab, and at the same time, there's nothing that I, I don't. I'm not sure this is like the world's like greatest or deepest point that just because we've had these associations for forever, that they're set in stone for forever. These, these teams do have kind of the right to, to do what they want. But I think, and, and this goes, this even goes back to the, the Chauvin decision, which we were, were talking about earlier with all these companies, including MLB saying things, however, wishy-washy, there's a form of kind of direct democracy that's happening now, which the right wing calls cancel culture, but really is just this sort of participation in of in the co- of the commons. Whereas in 1920, if the Red Sox had decided to leave for a new league, what were you going to do? Yell at Harry Frizee, write a letter to the editor. There wasn't a lot to do. But now you can start a boycott movement or at least make them look very bad on social media and millions of people will be talking about it in a matter of minutes. Childhood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and someone telling you no. Adulthood is wanting a variety of different baked sweets and being able to go right to Mickey D's to get every single one you want. (laughs) Whenever you want. Get the new glazed pull-apart donut and a 99 cents any-sized iced coffee with pumpkin spice flavor. Sweet. Prices and participation may vary. Limited time only. Iced coffee promo available until 11 a.m. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ay, qué hambre. ¿Pasamos por McDonald's? Va. ¿Qué ordenas normalmente? Mm, una quarter pounder. Ah, eres una burger person. <laughs> y unos McNuggets. Ah, eres de las mías. <laughs> El, la mejor manera de conocer a alguien, deal de McDonald's. Ordena por anticipado por el app de McDonald's y llévate dos de tus favoritos, como un McNuggets de 10 piezas y una quarter pounder por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar, producto individual a precio regular. Everything is unimaginable. What's unimaginable yesterday is seen as inevitable tomorrow, right? I mean, I, I wrote a book called Will Big League Baseball Survive? Because the construct now, which we abs- we've had more stability in the last 20, 30 years than really any period in baseball, but none of this is guaranteed. Now, I think this kind of super league, I mean, you know, that's a weird, you know, European football phenomenon. But I think to assume that the structures, the superstructures of baseball look the same in 20 or 30 years as they have for the last 20 or 30 years, there's no particular reason to think that. Yeah, people forget that we actually had a National League and an American League that had authority and presidents and separate uh, umpires and <laughs> right. things. And uh, the the idea, you know, the, this is kind of a side point, but not because this might be the angriest I've been about anything that's not actually important in a long time. <laughs> we especially, When the All-Star Game was pulled out of Atlanta and all the non-baseball media began weighing in on it, how often did you see the construct, the right. MLB? Yes. Okay, the MLB is grammatically wrong because it's Major League Baseball, not the Major League Baseball. But people take that cue from Did the they put National that on the Football Twitter? League or the National Basketball. It, yeah, <laughs> on the Twitter, right? But, but it's funny because it sort of speaks to something that only geeks like me and Steve think about a lot when it comes to baseball is that Major League Baseball as an entity, like as the authority, is a new phenomenon. It's always existed. There has been a commissioner's office, but people in 19, even in as late as the 70s, they didn't refer to Major League Baseball as the the business entity or the, the organizational entity. They talked about the National League or the American League or the major leagues. As late as the 1940s and certainly the 1930s and into the 1950s, if you said, what are the 10 best baseball teams in the United States of America? It's 
in, in some years, no more than half of them would have been in either the American or the National League, right? Baseball, the right. best baseball teams included Negro League teams and included PCL teams. If you expanded into the Americas more broadly, it included teams in the Caribbean. And and that that's as much part of baseball history. I mean, the, the San Francisco Seals or, you know, the Pittsburgh Crawfords are as much part of Major League Baseball, baseball history as the St. Louis Browns were in the 1930s. And, and to assume that the, what we have now is what we will always have is a, a fallacy in all aspects of life that we fall into too easily. The, the cutest thing we have going now are people that still believe that there's a difference between the American League and the National League based on the almost dead difference uh, with the designated hitter, which this will probably be the last year of. Within, I would say within a decade, maybe even less than that, we're going to have a situation where there is no National League or American League. Maybe they keep the name, but there's going to be realignment. There has to be because it makes too much sense for there not to be. And the the ascension of Major League Baseball is the governing body, not just of what we consider small M, small L, small B Major League Baseball, but all of baseball, the one baseball concept that Frank's talked about and we've talked about on here before that Rob Manfred has been really big about. That's what it's going to be. And and you're going to read things or people that don't pay as much attention are going to read things about the National League doing something and wonder how does this weird construct that is nothing but a label over the top of standings do anything? Well, it used to, and it doesn't. And that gets to your point that we, we've seen not a lot of huge wholesale change in the last couple of decades, but we've seen some incremental change that's made a lot of difference. And pretty soon we're probably going to see some major wholesale change in the, in the overall structures of it. We just saw it with how Major League Baseball has reorganized the minor leagues. Yeah, that's so, part of it. So too. here's here's yeah. a, a hypothetical. Since baseball does have revenue sharing and the teams at the lower end of the income scale do get a larger amount of money from the, the, the central fund, if let's say the major league owners got together this winter and said, let's say the, the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Cubs say we don't feel like paying into the Rays and the Marlins fund anymore. We are, as in the old Bugs Bunny cartoons, going to saw off Florida and let it float off into the Caribbean. We're just not going to have baseball there anymore. Is that a Super League move? Or is that a move that people would say, hey, we've tried this for 20-some years in, in this state. It doesn't work. It's defensible. What, what would their reaction be at that point? I think it'd be more like when we saw the labor battles in the 90s and into the 2002 collective bargaining agreement, where uh, while everybody talks about it as a fight between players and and owners and and strikes and whatnot, the real animating factor in all of that labor strife, at least post-1981, were fights between large market wealthy teams and poor teams. Those were the bigger rifts. Bob Lurie told me a story about a meeting during that era where, you know, the owner of the Pirates of the Royals was was speaking. It was a team meeting of all the owners. And after he was done speaking, George Steinbrenner said, well, now that our communist friend has spoken, I'll make a few comments. So, yes, that was that was what was driving a lot of those divisions. Yeah. So I, I, I think that if in your hypothetical, it would create a huge you know, a shit storm to use a technical term, a technical term. But I, yeah, I think it would, um, I, I don't think it would be seen as a super league move. It wouldn't be like changing the rules. It'd just be something that causes a lot of problems. And, you know, the players are out there at that same negotiating table and they, they would probably try to take advantage of it in some way. It'd, it'd be interesting. It'd be a mess. What do you imagine? So I was also struck by how virulent the politicians throughout Europe were, um, across the spectrum. It was the one thing that they could all agree on, regardless of political ideology, <laughs> uh, which was kind of extraordinary. And I think of how um, politicians in this country respond to the billionaire owners of the teams and wonder what it would have looked like. They're actually fans there, right? If you're if you're a member of parliament, you, you, you have a club that you follow and you care about deeply. Whereas here, I, I'm pretty sure Major League Baseball is only brought up as a political prop for most people, for most people in power. <laughs> the way and Hillary can... Clinton was both a Cubs and a Yankees fan, depending on where she was standing at, at a given moment. Kamala Harris grew up in Oakland, was the DA of San Francisco, and was seen at debate prep uh, when, she, when she was in the presidential race, not the VP uh, race wearing a Dodgers cap. So hey, yeah. she's a winner. She knows what's going on. But the <laughs> By the way, b- before we before we get any further, I, I actually want to apologize um, because and I, this is a little bit on behalf of Arnold Townsend and myself, but really this is just coming from me. I want to apologize that the Giants are in second place. I know that the story we want 
uh, is that the Dodgers and the Padres are the two super teams. And I suspect in a few weeks we, we will see that. But I just want to apologize. I know the Giants should be doing worse. And as a Giants fan, I can't really explain this. And and I know we're letting down the rest of MLB. The Red Sox should be doing worse, too. I still recall from last week Arnold saying that he found the everybody gets a trophy thing to be uh, disingenuous. So if the Giants make the playoffs on the wild card, I, I think you're obligated to not root for them. Um, no. Um, <laughs> but, if, but if the Padres are in third place and have a lot of exciting players... You know what's fun, Craig? Seeing Pablo Sandoval pinch hit home runs for the Braves, <laughs> not the Giants. He'll be a Giant by the end of the year, though. I love him. Uh, Pablo, anything short of the Dodgers or the Red Sox, I love seeing Pablo Sandoval. With a lot of fun was seeing Pablo Sandoval play so terribly for the Red Sox. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm having a very difficult time with the Braves these days, my historic rooting interest. Um, but I am liking to see Pablo Sandoval I am too. do good things because, because how Absolutely. can you not love that? The panda lives. I was at game one of the 2012 World Series, and uh, that was that was just one of – I probably – maybe the most fun baseball experience I've ever had. You know, Sandoval going off against the Tigers and just obliterating Justin Verlander. It was, it was fantastic, and uh, one of the highest points of baseball uh, ever, even though I couldn't cheer because I was nominally in a press box. I think the highest point of baseball ever, and I don't remember exactly where this was, but having parallel – stories one year of the Giants saying we've got Pablo Sandoval on a heavy diet. He's going to be in the best shape of his life this year. And roughly simultaneously, Pablo is tweeting out or Instagramming pictures of himself having the mega banana split Sunday, uh, wherever. I don't know where he was, was at that, that point, it, but just it was tubs it was of ice cream. Training. It was like the day after oh, this. No, I thought it was like the day after okay. the season okay. ended because the season ended poorly. He was out of shape and they said, well, this winter he is committed to this diet and everything. And it was like, <laughs> People yeah, forget in, two, in and 2010, he was on the bench during yeah. the postseason. Lincoln, and the, we give you a lot of crap about being a Giants fan, but I need to also add, I think the most exciting in-person baseball experience I ever had, but the Sandoval thing was fun but probably the most riveting and historic and everything baseball experience that I ever saw was seeing Madison Bumgarner win the world series in Kansas city. And, uh, in 2014, I was, I was there for that game and I don't, I, I hate Madison Bumgarner. I really do. Like, I don't like the guy at all. I don't like his game. I don't like anything about him, but I had chills, man, watching that performance. That was the single best performance I've ever seen in baseball in person in my life. And the fact that it came from Madison Bumgarner says a hell of a lot. So they didn't pull him after five innings. he He came came in in relief relief, in game seven one day's rest after like a complete game or something crazy after two games rest because uh the giants got had gotten their clock cleaned in game six and the pitcher was that great pitcher who who i believe later died christy matthews (laughs) no joe mcginnity i think it was this isn't another eric shaw reference is it i think it was paul splitorf actually (laughs) I, but the Royals fans, for that, I wasn't in the press box. I went down into the crowd, and I was sitting among a bunch of Royals fans that I had met and had been having beers with because NBC didn't care or they didn't know. And uh, even the Royals fans were in awe, and they knew we're losing the World Series right now, and they were sad on some level. But the ones around me anyway were very cognizant of the fact that they were watching history, and it was just a fantastic experience. Damn Giants. And on that note... We have come to the end of another episode of Say It Ain't Contagious. As always, should you find yourself with a moment to spare, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. We get a participation trophy if enough of you do that. And unlike our previous guest, we all desperately want and need participation trophies. At least those of us who did not were not athletic enough to participate in team sports when they were kids, I'm seriously, my kids have a ton of those, but uh, I'm seriously lacking in that. In any case, you can follow us on Twitter at SIAC pod, where we tweet out new episodes and other esoteric matters. And on that note, I am Stephen Goldman. And on behalf of Lincoln Mitchell, Tova Wang, Adrian Burgos, Craig Calcaterra, and myself, I say, get ready because it's not the fall that kills you. It's the sudden stop. And we will see you next time on Say It Ain't Contagious. Where do you come up with this shit? I'm really serious. There's a little door in my head. He he is the king of patterns.
If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. RCA's local inpatient and outpatient programs are founded on science and delivered with heart from an expert caring team who will inspire and guide you every step of the way. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now to speak with a treatment advisor. At RCA, you'll be in a community that builds connections and fosters support from peers and RCA's team of medical professionals and recovery support specialists. At RCA's state-of-the-art campuses, outside of D.C. and on the eastern shore of Maryland. They tailor your treatment to you and also offer specialized programs for patients with history of trauma, for patients who have achieved recovery but are experiencing a relapse, for young adults, adults 50 years and older, and for LGBTQ plus patients who wish to seek treatment without worry of stigmas. RCA answers the phone and accepts patients 24-7. And because it's local and in-network with insurance providers, treatment is affordable and accessible. Don't wait. Call 1-888-RECOVERY today. Home. It looks a little different for everyone. For some, it's a rustic cabin. For others, a big city high-rise. And for others, it's renting a tiny studio that said it had laundry in the building, but the dryer's always broken. And don't get me started on the gym. That's not a gym. It's an elliptical machine and a boiler room. And let's not even discuss parking. But no matter where you call home, GEICO makes it easy to bundle and save on renters and car insurance. Easier than getting your landlord to return your calls. You can't hide forever, Leonard. 